All right. First John chapter 5. In our last study, we, uh, we looked at uh, verses 13 through 15. And in that passage, what we studied there, that it was, we saw that the passage was focused on the assurance of our salvation. We saw that far from being a separate or a disconnected thought that John was introducing, um, that his, his desire to assure his readers of their true salvation has really been at the core of his entire letter, on his heart from the very beginning. See, knowing the true identity of the Lord Jesus and knowing what it means to have a true and actual relationship with him really is the very means of knowing that you have eternal life, that you have salvation. In that passage, the apostle taught us some very important truths regarding prayer. But we saw that his primary focus was on our relationship with God. And that for the true believer, a right understanding of praying, of prayer, and a right understanding of God answering our prayers is really knowing one of the the greatest blessings that we have in salvation, of having a true relationship, an actual relationship with the Lord Jesus, that God hears, that is, he pays close attention to our cries, our requests, to our prayers. And it's one of the greatest daily Reminders that we have of the authenticity of our salvation, the assurance of our salvation. Praise God. Tonight, Lord willing, we're going to finish the chapter and the book. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21. So let's read those verses together and then we'll get into our study. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then the final line of this letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, in this final section of John's letter, he he really sums up the concerns that he had for these churches, for his original readers, the concerns that really led him to write the letter in the first place. And these concerns he has developed and addressed in great detail throughout his letter. And we've had the ability to study each of these uh, throughout this series. Here, what he's doing in this last passage is he, he summarizes and he concludes his letter with what I'm calling final words of encouragement. His heart's attention, John's heart's attention is focused now, like laser focused on those 
he has identified as true believers. So he's, in a sense, he's encapsulating all of his tests that determine true believers and distinguishes them from false believers. And his encouragement here is rooted in this fact that all true believers share this common knowledge and have a common commitment to the truths that he has communicated throughout this letter. In his final words here, he focuses on what we know as essentials of the faith. He's not introducing a new doctrinal focus here at the end of his letter. No, what he's doing is he's encouraging and he's exhorting the church in a very practical application of the principles that he has taught throughout this letter. He speaks of things upon which we cannot hold different views. Things that we cannot hold different opinions. Things that we cannot hold different beliefs about and still be considered true believers. You see, the point here is that it's God himself who has opened our eyes to these things, to these truths. And because God is absolutely consistent, our understanding of these things is going to be absolutely consistent. God is not going to reveal a truth to you in one way and reveal that same exact truth to me in a completely different way. God is consistent. So our understanding of these truths will be absolutely consistent. That is if we are true believers. And then very importantly, we're going to be committed to these truths. We're going to be committed to them at a heart level and in an absolute sense. These that we refer to as the essentials of the faith, there's no wiggle room in them for us. They are what they are, and we hold to them, like I said, at a heart level and in an absolute sense. So I want to begin here in verse, I want to handle uh, verse 16 and 17 together. Let me reread those two verses and, um, and get into the study. Uh, verse, verse 16 and 17, he says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, in these two verses, John revisits an issue that he has addressed previously in his letter, addressed several times. The issue is this. There's a group of individuals within the church that he has identified as antichrists. Those who have previously professed to believe the true gospel, claimed to be true believers. They were part of the church, part of the fellowship of the true believers. But now they deny Christ. And they deny Christ by denying that Jesus is God incarnate. Now, the wording in these two verses has, through the years, left many believers and even some Bible teachers and commentators and pastors and scholars has left them somewhat confused. And the problematic wording in this passage occurs in these two phrases, sin not leading to death and sin that leads to death. There's a challenge here. 
And the challenge is in understanding what distinguishes sin that leads to death from sin that doesn't lead to death. Our responsibility, our responsibility as Christians, as believers, our responsibility as as students of God's word, certainly our responsibility as teachers of God's word is to decipher John's meaning. Because here's the thing, our understanding of what it is that John's talking about here, our understanding of his meaning has a huge impact on our understanding of God himself. It has a huge impact on our understanding of salvation, of our own salvation. And it has a huge impact on how we live our lives as God's children. You see, what what John is doing here is he's categorizing sin. Now, I think we all understand that in one sense, all sin is the same. In that it is all wrong, it's all displeasing to God. In other words, there is no sin that God condones. There's no sin that God allows or approves of. God is displeased by all sin. But in another sense, there are different categories of sin. And this is what John's doing here. He's making a distinction between two particular categories of sin. Sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death. So let's look at these two categories. First, John addresses sin that does not lead to death. Now, we know that all people sin, right? Everybody sins. Even true believers. And remember, this is who John is specifically addressing in this passage, the true believers. So these are, these are what I would call ordinary sins that believers commit every day of their lives. You sin every day. I sin every day. Every true believer in all the churches that John was writing to sin every day. These are the sins that he's referring to. Now, don't get me wrong. These sins are offensive to God. They are not in any way permissible by God. They're not in any way okay with God. But they're not sins that lead to death. These sins do not lead to death because, and John has has explained and we've developed this in past studies, these sins do not lead to death because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess these sins to him. We, John established this, he addressed it, and we, we uh, 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 did an entire study on this back in chapter 1 when we covered verses 8 and 9. What John is doing is he's acknowledging this again by encouraging his readers to pray for one another, to pray for the brothers and sisters that they see committing these sins. So this is both an exhortation and an encouragement. You see, if any of his readers are questioning their relationship with Jesus, and this was one of John's main concerns in this letter, if any of them are questioning their relationship with Jesus, if they're questioning their salvation, the reality, the authenticity of their salvation, he's reminding them here that when they pray, he's reminding them that God loves them. God deeply loves them. God provides for them. And God responds to their prayers because he is faithful 
and just. He forgives them their sins. And he gives them not death, but life. And this is what identifies these sins as sins that do not lead to death. Now John goes on to address sin that does lead to death. So here John is, he's revisiting one last time, right at the tail end of his letter, the reason he wrote this letter in the first place. And that was to identify this group of individuals who claim to be believers, who claim to be saved, born again, but who are not. This group who deny that Jesus is God incarnate. It's the group that John has identified as antichrists. And to bring this group to the attention of the true believers within the church. You see, his entire letter serves as a warning to the true believers there because these false believers, these antichrists, are actively trying to lead them astray. They're trying to get the true believers to believe the way they do. They're trying to convince them that Jesus is not actually, truly the Christ by denying that he is God incarnate. So John's heart motivation throughout the entire letter is to protect these true believers from the evil of the Antichrists in their rebellion against God. So here John is drawing into sharp focus the sin of the Antichrists, the sin of denying Christ by those who have previously professed to believe the true gospel, the truth of the gospel. And this is sin that spiritually kills. It spiritually destroys. It is, it is so deeply rooted that it eats away the spiritual heart like a cancer. You see, again, this is a primary motivation for John in writing this letter. The context of his entire letter is differentiating between the true believers and those who claim to be, but who are not. Those who claim to be true believers, but who are denying Christ by denying that he's the son of God, God incarnate. It is this denial, that denial is their sin. And it's what defines the sin It's what defines the sin that leads to death. You see, this this denial by those, remember, they've heard the truth of the gospel. They have claimed to accept that truth, to believe that truth, to embrace that truth. They have experienced the fellowship of the church. They have been in fellowship with the church. This denial of theirs is sin of a hardened and hardening heart. Their hearts have been hardened and they're just getting more and more and more hardened in this sin. It's a sin that spiritually destroys and kills. Like I said, like a cancer, a cancer that grows and destroys. So John is describing this sin as a category of sin. He's describing this category of sin as one that is so spiritually damaging, so deeply rooted in the heart of the one committing the sin that we are not even to intercede for those who are so hardened 
whose hearts are so hardened that they continue in this sin. They continue in this denial of Jesus being God incarnate. You see, this sin has one and only one outcome, death. So John has distinguished, has differentiated between sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death. But to ensure that there is no confusion about this distinction that he's drawn between sin not leading to death and sin that does lead to death, to ensure that his readers understand that there is no sin that is in any way okay with God. There is no sin that in any way is not an offense to God, not offensive to God, that there is no sin that in any way is not wrong to ensure that they they don't get confused about this. He states very explicitly there in verse 17 that all sin is wrong. No confusion. All sin is wrong. But there is sin that does not lead to death. And like I said, as I explained before, it's these, I'm calling them ordinary common sins that believers commit every day of their lives. These are the sins that you and I commit. These are the sins for which he is encouraging them to pray for one another when they commit these sins. When they see a brother or sister committing sin, sinning, he encourages them to pray for one another. This is sin that the true believer has confessed as sin. And it's sin that God has forgiven and God has cleansed the offender from the unrighteousness associated with sin. Praise God. Now, let's look at verse 18. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, John, uh, John developed this principle of not continuing in sin in great detail back in chapter 3. We did a complete study on that. It's verses 1 through 10. He's referring to the same principle of not sinning here. Okay, let me just briefly touch on some of the points that we made uh, back then. In, in practicing sin, you know, basically what that means to practice or to keep on sinning in this context simply means to continue doing it. It has to do with a perspective, a heart perspective of repeatedly sinning with no intention and no desire to ever stop. And John, he differentiates between those who practice righteousness, those who do not keep on sinning, and those who practice sin. Okay, while both sin, both groups sin, there are two completely different perspectives toward their sin. Those who practice righteousness or those who do not keep on sinning, do not continue sinning, the true believers, you and me, they sin, right? Every day they sin, but they have remorse for their sins. They have regret for the sins that they commit. They confess their sins as sin. Remember 1 John 1 verse 9. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. The true believer desires to seek forgiveness, desires reconciliation with God and with those whom he has sinned against. They understand that 
repeated sin is a problem. They embrace that idea and they have a desire to change. They have a committed intention to turn away from sin and to sin no more. They have repentance. Now, let's look at those who practice sin. They sin also, right? But they have no remorse for their sin. They have no regret for their sin. They don't confess their sins as sin because usually they don't even see it as sin. Nothing to confess. They don't seek forgiveness for the same reason. They don't really view their actions as sinful, as something that they need to to seek forgiveness for. Bottom line is they have absolutely no intention to turn from their sin. So there's a difference in heart perspective. So here, John is reiterating the point that he made back in chapter 3. Now, you know, it, it certainly serves as, a, as an excellent reminder of what we learned back in chapter 3, but that's not really his purpose here. His purpose in reiterating this point is to support and to reinforce the concern that he's just addressed in verses 16 and 17. There's this group of hardened heart heretics in the church. We know that they're not born of God. We know that they are not true believers. How do we know this? Because they are continuing in their sin. And their sin is heretical teaching. They're teaching that Jesus is not God incarnate. Their sin is this heretical teaching and actively trying to influence the true believers in this heretical teaching. They're continuing in this sin because as unbelievers, they're under a particular spiritual influence. And what influence is that? They're under the spiritual influence of the evil one, of Satan. And for these individuals, those that John has identified as antichrists, the evil one has a grip on them. He has a firm grip on them, and he has no intention whatsoever of letting go. John reassures and encourages his readers by reminding them of their standing before God, by reminding them of whose protection, under whose protection, they stand. And then at at this point in the verse, he describes a protector. Now, I, I just find his words deeply encouraging. But he who was born of God protects him. Very encouraging words, but the specific wording can be a little confusing. It's it's actually debated as to whom John is actually referring when he talks about this protector. Whether he's referring to the Lord Jesus himself as the protector, or is he referring to the believer, the true believer, the born-again believer, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course. But is he describing the believer himself as being the protector? I am convinced that his reference to the protector, when he says, he who was born of God, here, this reference is a reference to the Lord Jesus himself, not the believer Now, let me explain or try to explain. This uh, this reference, uh, being born of God, it's a a common reference throughout Scripture of born-again believers. 
Scripture in many places refers to to born-again believers as being born of God. And I, I, I will say this, this is a unique occurrence of this phrase being used to describe Jesus, but the principle of this phrase, what this phrase is really actually saying, is expressed in many New Testament passages referring to Jesus. I've selected two. Let me just read them to you. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the other one I selected is, is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 35. It says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, these passages and others like them, these verses and others like them, aren't using the exact phrase, but the principle I see is the same. Now, as part of my studying and preparation to teach this, uh, well, tonight's Bible study, but this verse in particular, I looked at all of the English translations to which I have access to, probably 12 to 15. I looked at all the English translations, like I said, that I have access to, and they all, except one, have the same basic wording as what I've read to you from the, from the ESV. The one exception comes from an English translation known as the Living Bible. And it expresses what I believe to be the true and accurate understanding of this verse. Let me read this verse to you from the Living Bible. It says, No one who has become part of God's family makes a practice of sinning. For Christ, God's Son, holds him securely. And the devil cannot get his hands on him. I believe that's an accurate rendering of what John is saying in this verse. So let me read the ESV translation to you again, and I'm going to insert a couple of my own descriptors here to kind of explain my view on this. We know that everyone who has been born of God, references to the true believers, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus. But he who was born of God protects him, the true believer. And the evil one does not touch him, touch the true believer. I'm convinced that this is John's meaning. It, It best fits the context of John's entire letter. So in these three verses, 16, 17, 18, John is, I'm convinced, describing the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus actively working in us to keep us on the trajectory of sinning less, sinning less and less as Time goes on as we mature, as we grow in the Lord. It's called sanctification. And he has paid for all of the sins that we do commit as children of God. Now, his reference to Jesus here as the protector, most likely, I think, Uh, is based upon uh, John's own knowledge of Jesus from from being with him, from walking with him, from living with him during his earthly ministry. And his understanding of Jesus as 
the good shepherd. In fact, in, in, in John's gospel, in chapter 10, verse 11, he records these very words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So Jesus, the good protector, protects his flock. Under his protection, under the protection of the Lord Jesus, Satan, the evil one, cannot touch, cannot lay hold on, cannot fasten his grip upon the true believer. True believers are no longer under the influence of Satan. They've been rescued from the domain of darkness. He can tempt us. He can harass us. But he can never, ever, ever reclaim us as his own. We are under the protection of the Lord Jesus. So I'm convinced that John's reference here is to the Lord Jesus. Because of this, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning the way they did when they practiced unrighteousness. That it's that, that heart perspective towards sin that has changed. We know this. We can be confident in this because it's the Lord Jesus himself who protects us. Again, praise God. Praise God. Okay, verse 19. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So here he's continuing to support and reinforce the concern that he addressed in verses 16 and 17. Here what he's doing is he, he presents a contrast, a contrast between those who are under God's power and those who are under the power of the evil one. And he, he references the world, the whole world here. Now we studied his meaning of this phrase back in chapter 2 when we, when we did a study on verses 15 through 17. And his meaning is the same here as it as it was in that passage. What he's talking about when he says the world is humanity structured and organized in hostility and rebellion toward God. It's the way the world is organized in rebellion to God. So the world in this context lies in the the power and under the influence of the evil one. Okay. So John has just assured us in verse 18 that Satan cannot and does not touch us as true believers. Why? We are under the protection of the Lord Jesus. Here, what he's doing is he's stating that all those who are not true believers, those who are not born again, those who do not truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate, they are not under the protection of the Lord Jesus. They are all under the powerful influence of Satan, He's under his, his influence in their beliefs, in their belief systems, in the way they live their lives. Now, his specific concern here is these heretics, the antichrists, they claim, and you know, some of them even think, really think, that they belong to God, that they are under God's influence. But the reality is, they're not. They're not. They're under the influence, the spiritual influence of the enemy. They are spiritual idolaters. They are not under the influence of God. They're not under the influence of his Holy Spirit. And they're certainly not under the protection of the Lord Jesus. They're under the influence of the ruler of this fallen world, the evil one, Satan. And John is reassuring and encouraging his readers and us by reminding them that they, 
We, unlike the heretics, are from God and are under the protection of the Lord Jesus. The evil one cannot touch them, nor can his influence touch them. Now in verse 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So here John is reminding us that we know that the Son of God has come and that we know why he came. He came for the purpose of interrupting, of disrupting, and of changing the influence of the evil one in the world. You see, as John has just declared, Satan, the evil one, still has influence over the unbelievers of the world, those who are part of this system, this world system that is in rebellion against God. And he has deep influence, very deep influence, over the heretics of whom John is warning them, over the Antichrists. But since Jesus came, there's a difference in the world. There's a change. He has given us, the true believers, he's given us understanding. That is, he's opened our spiritual eyes so that we now understand the lies of the enemy. We know the lies of the enemy as lies. We are able to discern. And John's original readers are able to recognize the lies of the Antichrists, of the heretics, because God has opened their eyes to the truth. And then even more importantly, He's given us the ability to know him, not just know about him, but to know him, to know, to know that we know that we know that he is the truth, the only truth to know that he is truly the son of God, God incarnate. And to know this in what we call a saving way to have this special relationship with him, a saving relationship. He has made us to be one with him. He's brought us into his family. He's brought us out of the darkness and into the light, into his kingdom, into his family. And we now know, we now understand that he And he alone is the true God. That is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus is God incarnate. Then in the final line of this verse, John makes this uh, short but very impactful statement, a very impactful declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say, I'm going to say, that this is the strongest direct declaration of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. Look at it. Let's read this again, what John wrote. He, referring to Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. So in this short statement, he reiterates to his readers, he reminds them what the heretics deny. And the reason that he wrote this letter, he's describing who Jesus really is. God incarnate. He is 
the true God. And then he encourages them of exactly what that means to them. What does it mean to them? What does it mean to us? It means eternal life. They've been born of God. We have been born of God. They belong to him. They belong to God. They no longer belong to this fallen world. No longer do they lie in the power of the evil one. No longer does the evil one even touch them. They and we are under God's sovereign and all-powerful protection. Praise God. And then finally, verse 21, the last verse of this book, the last line of John's letter. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, these are John's closing, closing words of exhortation. He clearly has a deep concern, a deep love for the true believers to whom he was writing. Keep in mind, the Lord has an even deeper concern for all of his children. John was writing, as he wrote this letter, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John's heart, mind, and words were directed to those he knew would be reading his words. But the Lord knew even more. The Lord knew that those words would be recorded for the benefit of his entire church throughout the ages, for you, for me. So as such, we need to pay very close attention to this exhortation. We need to embrace it. We need to apply it in our own lives. In these very few words, John expresses the crucial and critical importance of worshiping the one true God exclusively. And he uses this term, idol, to convey this importance. Now, the English definition of an idol is an image or representation of a God used as an object of worship. When we think of an idol, oftentimes we, we think of it as some type of a physical object, you know, like a, like a carved image or a cast image, a statue, a picture. You know, it could even be something like <clears throat> a car, a house, a boat, you know, possessions, Right? We, like I said, we, just, we generally tend to think of an idol as some type of a physical object. Keep in mind that an idol is a false god. Certainly any of these, these physical objects that I've, that I've named can be false gods. But it's important for us to understand that in addition to physical objects, any false concept of who God is, is an idol. You see, if we change one essential element or aspect of God's nature, we're no longer talking about God. We're talking about a false God. For instance, if we embrace, embrace a wrong understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're no longer talking about God. We're no longer worshiping God. We are engaging in idolatry. We've created a false God. This was the specific concern that John was addressing. This is what the antichrists were doing. But understand, this concern applies to any wrong understanding of any essential attribute of God. John's main concern is that his readers would not fall under the influence of these false teachers, the false believers, the antichrists that we've studied and and developed throughout the letter. 
they were doing just this. They were presenting a false representation of God. Oh yeah, we believe in God. Yeah, it's just that Jesus is not really God incarnate. But they, they didn't believe in God. That wasn't God. They weren't describing God. They were describing an idol. This was idolatry. Now, this final exhortation of John's was certainly meant for his readers. He didn't want his readers to fall under this influence, the influence of these false teachers, these antichrists. And thereby, because if they did, they would fall into, they would enter into idolatry. And he didn't want that to happen. But for us, let's not lose sight of the fact that this exhortation is meant every bit as much for us today as it was for John's original readers. The Lord desires and intends us to keep ourselves, to guard ourselves from falling under the influence of anything or anyone who would pull us away from the absolute truth about who God really is, to keep ourselves from idolatry. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible portion of Scripture that we know as 1 John. Father, I pray that all that we have learned about who our Lord Jesus Christ really is and all of what it means to be a true believer, to experience the new birth, to be born again, to be your child, to be a member of your family. All that we have learned through this series, Father, I pray that that will sink deeply into our hearts and impact our hearts for the rest of our lives. Amen.